Hello, I'm Tony Collins and this is the Rugby Reloaded podcast. Last Friday, the Super League clubs deferred their decision about whether to allow Toronto Wolfpack to compete in the 2021 season. Their fate has become one of the biggest talking points in British Rugby League and from a historical perspective, the story of the Wolfpack has thrown a sharp light on the question of Rugby League expansion. Expanding the game beyond what came to be known as its Northern England heartlands has been an issue from the earliest days of the Northern Union. Indeed, the culture of rugby league has always been torn between what might be called expansionist and traditionalist views. Of course, in reality, rugby league has massively expanded since 1895 to New Zealand, Australia, France and dozens of other countries around the world. And amateur rugby league has never been played more widely in Britain than in the 21st century. But when British rugby league supporters talk about expansion, they really mean expansion of the professional game beyond the north of England. When the Northern Union was founded in 1895, it did not see itself as developing as a purely northern organisation. At that time, both professional soccer and rugby in England were confined to the industrial north and midlands. Even by 1895, there was only one club in the football league, Arsenal, from south of Birmingham, and it took another decade before two more teams from London joined it. Both rugby codes suffered as the Football League and soccer in general grew to be a juggernaut in the early 1900s. But the Northern Union had always believed, for obvious reasons, that South Wales was a natural region to expand the game. That belief seemed to be coming to fruition in the summer of 1907 when it was announced that professional rugby league teams were being formed in Merthyr Tydfil and Ebervale. Both were immediately accepted into rugby league, but each ended their first seasons in the game in the bottom five of the league. The following season... Aberdeer, Barry, Midwander and Treherbert joined. Although Merthyr and Ebervale finished 8th and 14th in the league in 1908-1909, the others struggled badly. Aberdeer, Barry and Midwander folded after their first seasons, followed by Treherbert the next. Merthyr struggled on until 1911 and finally Ebervale, who reached the quarter-finals of the Challenge Cup in 1910, threw in the towel just before the 1912-13 season began. Why did these Welsh clubs fail? It goes without saying that they faced the unremitting hostility of rugby union, which made it difficult to find grounds where they could play. And, of course, union's life ban for anyone who played league was a major deterrent to rugby union players who wanted to give league a go. But this was just one of the many reasons for the Welsh League Club's failure. They were also crippled by the cost of travelling north, not to mention the time that rail travel took to get from the Welsh Valleys to the north of England. Then there was also the problem of northern clubs picking off the cream of Welsh talent. The new Welsh clubs couldn't afford the same signing-on fees or wages as the rich Lancashire or Yorkshire clubs. For example, Welsh Rugby Union international Ben Grano turned down offers from Welsh clubs and signed instead for Huddersfield, who could offer him far more money than any of the Welsh clubs could afford. But there was also an on-field problem. The new Welsh sides were usually outclassed by experienced English teams, which meant that crowds rarely rose above a few thousand. There was certainly an appetite for rugby league in South Wales, International matches often attracted five-figure crowds, but Welsh crowds used to watching the best in rugby union did not want to watch weak Welsh league clubs getting trounced every week. These exact same problems also faced the other attempts to establish professional clubs in Wales in 1926 and 1951. Professional sport is a dog-eat-dog world, and the Welsh example demonstrates that if the governing body does not impose strict incubation rules to protect new clubs, they cannot survive. These same points also apply to the Coventry Northern Union Club, which was formed in 1910 by members of the Coventry Rugby Union side, which had been suspended by the RFU for professionalism. Coventry lasted three years before folding for basically the same reasons as the Welsh clubs. 
This was even truer in the southwest of England, where a number of rugby union sides joined the Northern Union in 1912 to form a Western League, with clubs in Newton Abbott, Paynton, Plymouth, Tainmouth and Torquay. But a lack of funds, distance from the North and little organisational support from the Northern Union meant that the South West also struggled to survive. And when the RFU announced an amnesty for local league players in April 1913, the new South West clubs gave up what was looking like an increasingly impossible struggle. This lack of strategic foresight on the part of Rugby League was highlighted in 1920, when Ebervale Rugby Union Club wrote to the Northern Union to announce that they wanted to discuss switching to Rugby League. However, for obvious reasons, they wanted an assurance that these negotiations would be confidential. Amazingly, the Northern Union replied by saying that it couldn't guarantee confidentiality because it was legally obliged to inform its member clubs about such discussions. Unsurprisingly, Ebervale did not pursue their interests and stayed loyal to Welsh Rugby Union, proving once again that Rugby League never misses an opportunity to miss an opportunity. However, the dream of expansion did not die. The 1930s saw a new wave of Rugby League expansion, with three clubs created in London and one in Newcastle. In 1933, London Highfield kicked off at the White City Stadium and were followed two years later by Acton and Wilson and Streatham and Mitcham. To attract spectators, the Streatham clubs signed New Zealand's greatest ever rugby union fullback, George Nepia. But these clubs were fatally undermined even before they took the field. Each one had been created by businessmen whose primary interest was in greyhound racing, one of the boom sports of the 1930s. Rugby League was simply a way for them to fill their stadia when there was no dog racing. So when their clubs faced the inevitable difficulties of professional sports teams, their owners abandoned them and the RFL could provide little support. None of the four expansion sides lasted longer than two years. Doggedness, an essential quality when running a sports club, was not something that the greyhound racing promoters possessed. It wasn't until the 1980s that expansion appeared again on the rugby league agenda. Fulham kicked off Professional Rugby League's rebirth in London in 1980. They were followed in 1981 by Cardiff and Carlisle. Kent Invicta, based in Maidstone, came along in 1983. Sheffield Eagles and Mansfield Marksman in 1984. And the last of the new wave, Scarborough Pirates, in 1991. With the exception of Sheffield Eagles and Fulham's successor, London Broncos, none of these clubs exist today. Only Carlisle lasted more than a decade, eventually folding in 1997. Scarborough lasted only a single season, and Kent barely survived two seasons, the second of which saw them relocate and change their name to South End Invicta. This would seem like a dismal record of failure, but with the exception of Sheffield and Mansfield, all of them had one thing in common. They were created by soccer club owners. Just like the Greyhound track owners in the 1930s, the owners of these clubs were only interested in rugby league to the extent that it could help them finance their soccer clubs. Once it became obvious that this was unrealistic, they abandoned the game. That this would happen should have been obvious to anyone with a passing interest in the history of the game. But even without that knowledge, a glance at the map of England and Wales would show that there was no strategic plan behind the creation of these new clubs, nor was there any idea of what these clubs were meant to achieve on or off the field. So clubs sprang up and then collapsed, with no accountability or balance sheet of the lessons. The only clubs that survived were Fulham, thanks to a small but committed rugby league community that had emerged in London, Sheffield, thanks to the rugby league passion and know-how of Kath and Gary Hetherington, and later Mark Aston, and Catalan Dragons, who were based in a rugby league heartland anyway, and, uniquely, were given strategic support by Super League and exempted from relegation for three seasons. Which brings us back to Toronto. On the field, 
they are undoubtedly a success, while off the field they attract crowds that won't be the envy of most clubs in Britain. In 2019, they were the 8th best supported side in the whole of the game, eclipsing 5 Super League clubs despite playing in the second tier. And while their administration and off-field management appears to be amateurish and chaotic, sadly that is nothing new for the British game. Far from proving that rugby league expansion cannot work, Toronto demonstrates just how popular the game can be when staged as an attractive and modern spectator event. There's one more thing that Canada can teach rugby league. Sports that are very deeply rooted in a particular region and have a very strong sense of their own unique identity often imagine that they cannot reach new audiences. Sometimes they don't even want to reach out and condemn themselves to isolation and irrelevance. Yet there's no reason why those qualities cannot be a selling point by providing a unique and thrilling sporting experience. This could even provide a platform for a sport to expand its league internationally and find its own niche in new sporting cultures. Perhaps this sounds like wishful thinking, but it's already happened to the National Hockey League. There is no sport more associated with Canada than ice hockey. It's the national game. The sport was invented there and the NHL was founded in Canada by Canadian clubs. They only started to admit American teams in the 1920s. Today, the vast majority of its 31 clubs come from the United States. Yet this has not altered the culture of the sport, nor has it changed Canadians' special relationship to it. But its popularity in America has given it financial security and transformed it into a global sport. There are lessons there for someone. So, as the discussion on the future of the Wolfpack continues, perhaps it's time to ask not what Rugby League can do for the Wolfpack, but what Canada can teach and do for Rugby League. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode of the Rugby Reloaded podcast. As I'm sure you know, my Twitter handle is at CollinsTony and my website is www.rugbyreloaded.com where you can find a complete archive of episodes about the history of rugby and the other football codes along with the show notes and links for this episode. Until next week, thanks for listening.